open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We're having a week with Saifedean Amus. He's author of the Bitcoin Standard and an Austrian school economist. Welcome back, Saifedean. Thank you for having me, Trace. Yeah, so we're going to talk about a concept that is just really near and dear to my heart and purpose, which is time preference. Uh, Like in my own case, I would say one of my core purposes for what I do in the Bitcoin space and the sound money space is monetary sovereignty. And that has to do with enabling people the freedom to choose and protecting their private property. But more embedded into that would be a time preference for a much longer, longer term, perhaps even after people are dead, like what type of life have we created and all of these things. And you have to have an attention span longer than a goldfish to begin that type of process of self-reflection and figuring out like what you do, why you do it, where you're going and what type of person you're becoming. And so let's start with that. Like what is time preference and why is it important? So time preference, the definition is that it is the degree to which you discount the future to the present. And that number is universally positive. It's always positive for every human being that has ever lived at any period in time. It has to be positive. In other words, if you ask any person whether they would want something done to them or to want to receive something today or 10 years from now, the same thing, the same exact good or the same exact uh, amount of economic value, if it is the same and they're given the choice between having it today or having it 10 years from now, they will choose today. It makes sense for everyone to choose today. And, you know, experiment shows that everybody pretty much chooses today. And the reason, ultimately, in in, in the interpretation of Austrian economists is that time preference is always positive because our life is uh, finite and uncertain. We are going to die. And so you've only got a few dozen years on Earth likely. And so during those years, you know, you prefer to get all of the good stuff to happen to you as soon as possible, because you never know when those years might end. So given a choice between a house today or 50 years from now, you choose to have today, similarly, five years and so on. So it's always positive. Humans always prefer it. However, the degree to which it is positive the degree to which time preference is high, effectively, is a very important factor that varies between uh, individuals. And I have, you know, from before I've learned about Bitcoin, I was uh, quite interested in this concept and quite fascinated by it. I don't think modern economics does anywhere near good of a job to cover it or discuss it or, or explain it well enough. 
Yeah, it's extremely important. When I teach economics classes at university, I always make sure whatever the course that I'm teaching, and I teach everything from uh, you know basic microeconomics and uh, macroeconomics to graduate uh, level seminars. In every single class, I have to spend at least half a lecture discussing time preference and just introducing them to this concept, because I found you know just simply learning about this concept was life altering. It just changes the way that you think of life. It teaches you the value of time. It teaches you why time matters. It teaches you to respect time. It teaches you to value yourself in the future. It teaches you to think about uh, acting uh, consciously. And learning about it was obviously very transformative for me in my own individual life. But also, I think it's particularly interesting from the perspective of Austrian economics and with its relation to Bitcoin and the hardness of money. But before I get to that, I think the real importance of it, I should add, is that I, in, in my opinion, I think it's uh, time preference is the most important factor in determining an individual's uh, success or failure in life i think in a sense you are always making decisions that uh, that are essentially trades between you and your future selves you know every single moment of your life involves large amounts of trade-offs between you and your future self and i think you know you, the, your biggest trade partner in your life as an individual is yourself i think you know if you want to take the premise of free trade further you know for all of the benefits of trading with the rest of the world that occur to you, you know, you conduct, what, 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 transactions in one day with other people. But with yourself, you're conducting essentially infinite numbers of transactions with every single decision you take. Every time you choose to, you know, curb your instinct of doing something that would be convenient now because it has negative consequences later, you are taking somewhat more of a lower time preference in your decision-making. So if you think about it, with these decisions, if you are generally focused and oriented on the present, and that generally is the state of children and in the state in which everybody is born, and then it takes a certain level of maturity and uh, guidance and you know exposure to real experiments in life, you know, you could get lucky and have guidance that takes you in that direction, or you could get unlucky and uh, have to learn the hard way. But eventually, you know, the process of maturing is the process of understanding these trade-offs and understanding that, you know, actions have consequences in the long run. And it's, it's imperative for you to think about the long run in order for you to achieve anything that you want. You need to start thinking about the long run, even if, you know, whatever your needs are or whatever your requirements in life are, they are better served by you thinking in the long run, focusing on the long run. So uh, in my book, I argue it's the most important determinant of an individual's uh, life because if you have a high time preference, you know, relatively speaking, you know, comparing between two different people that are, let's say, extremes on uh, this, although there, is, there are no extremes, but, you know, two people with a large difference in their time preference, you know, the, the person with the high time preference will always manage to find a reason to spend extra money that they have you know I, th I think the sort of the prototypical example is of the athlete i follow soccer very closely and so you know there was always this archetype of the wonder child who at age 17 goes from poverty to becoming a little bit of a superstar nationwide worldwide superstar starts earning enormous amounts of money but then, you know, even though even though they come out of massive poverty and even though they, if you ask them, 
how much money they would want for the rest of their life at the age of 16. You know, they probably wouldn't imagine a sum, one-tenth of what they will go and earn over the next 15 years in their professional career. Yet, they still earn, say, 10 times what they imagine they want, and they still manage to spend it all. Why? Because there's always going to be another sports car, a bigger boat, a bigger mansion, and something else on which you can spend money. And if you're focused on happiness and satisfaction, then you're going to always take the decision that favors the immediate present at the expense of the future. And that's going to ruin the person financially, no matter how much money they earn. On the other hand, you know, I think the opposite is also likely to work out on the average overall. Yeah, so we're really talking about immediate gratification versus being able to delay choices and choices that have consequences. You know, if you're always going to just say, say you have a desire to eat and you're just eating all the time, eat, 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 and you don't discipline yourself and you're turning out to be 700 pounds, I mean, it's just crazy like how the different vices can take hold of people and the concept of time preference is really the one of the a very strong weapon you would say to disciplining one's life in the choices that they're making absolutely because the thing about the way that time preference works is that with all of these decisions in a sense uh, with all of the important decisions that an individual needs to make you know there's always the easy way out which is the short term uh, quick fix it's the fix yeah and that always exacerbates things in the long run and so if you continue to take the easy way out, you just continue to accumulate, uh, essentially, trouble into the future. And so that that's going to lead to, well, let, let's start with the macro. You know, we, we're in this process of building civilization through mutual advantageous trade. But we seem to go in cycles as humanity and we get cultural decline. How is, like, the role of fiat, currency sound versus unsound money played into time preference both for the individual and in the larger picture and how that's related to just culture in general and cultural decline. Yeah, so I mean this aspect of the topic of time preference uh, after I read a book by Ferdinand Lips called uh, Gold Wars in which he discusses the history of gold as money and he discusses the culture that accompanies it and uh, you know the, how uh, Societies change as they move from hard money to easy money or uh, the other way around. This was something that fascinated me a lot. And its implications to Bitcoin are absolutely fascinating because Lips makes a fascinating and very compelling case that uh, societies that had gold, you know, the stability of having a store of value that is able to protect value into the future allows people to start thinking of the long run. And so in all aspects of life, their economic and uh, personal decision-making heads in the direction of cooperating with one another towards peace, towards long-term orientation, towards capital accumulation, towards saving, towards acting essentially in a moral fashion. That's really, to a large extent, what morality is about, you know, understanding that doing bad things will have negative consequences over time and you know, refusing to do those things. Of course, it's, it's not all. It's not just consequential analysis of morality, but it's intimately related in my mind. And yes, it's no coincidence. I mentioned many of these examples in my book. That if you look at the twentieth century, we have a mass consumption culture that people consume a lot. That people don't understand the concept of saving. Nobody saves money. Everybody's always uh, borrowing money in order to uh, spend from it. 
it's no coincidence that in the 19th century, the savings rates were much higher. People uh, were much better at saving for the long run. And you see, you know, families were stronger back then than they are right now. Uh, food was better back then than it is now in many ways. If you look at menus of restaurants from like La Belle Epoque, from the Golden Period, from the Gilded Age, menus of restaurants back then were essentially just different cuts of different animals and an enormous variety of cuts from an enormous variety of animals. It's, it's sad, you know, you walk into the average restaurant today and you have some, a couple of chicken breast cuts in salad and a couple of meat cuts, filet, clean meat. Whereas back then it was much more rich food. Now it's highly processed and industrial food. Yeah, in your book you even talk about like art and society and music and like all of these different aspects of what distinguishes man from the warthog or from uh, you know some other just totally sensory based type of a mind uh, one that can actually think and reason and logic and you said that in the in the book you even talked about like how inventions and all of these great advances in technology that we've made took place under these the, the this sound money type of a of an environment very much so yeah i agree i mean i think in in, in my book i uh, i quote jack barzoon who wrote a very very powerful and important book called from dawn to decadence it's about a it's essentially a 500 year history of uh, western civilization and in it he describes la belle époque you know the golden era from 1870 to 1914 in, in such amazing tones, I really highly recommend everybody reads that book and looks at how he discusses it in terms of the culture and the art and, um, you know, the politics, the social fabric of society, the general culture. He, he was an, uh, an astonishingly good uh, cultural critic and he lived to, to, I think, about 100 years. And he was at Columbia University, I think, uh, towards the end of his days uh, while I was there, but I only found out about him uh, later on. In any case, his book is astonishing in how it describes the decline that happened after 1914. It places 1914 as essentially being the beginning of the decline of Western societies. How coincidental. Exactly. It's astonishing, you know, and, and the, 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 he describes it with vivid detail when it comes to politics, when it comes to culture, music, um, you know, with when it comes to art, he blames it all on, well, doesn't blame it, but, you know, he, he, the poster boy for the decline for him is Picasso and, and the move of Picasso, which happened exactly around 1914. And so everything revolves around 1914. And the one thing that he doesn't mention is the money and the monetary standard, the shift in the monetary standard, which I think, you know, Having been at Columbia University, he's obviously been disadvantaged by having learned this kind of economics that uh, I learned back then. Or, you know, you can understand why modern academics weren't too eager to discuss that. But when you throw that in with all of the, the other things that we know changed in the world around 1914, when essentially the gold standard was actually abandoned. People think the gold standard was abandoned in 1971. It was really in 1914, even though... Even before 1914, it wasn't perfectly well, operable. That's because we had the gold standard, we had the gold exchange standard, we had Bretton Woods. I mean, like, we had many different types of this gold standard. Yeah. And 1914 essentially was, you know, the period when which people lost convertibility of their money with the beginning of World War One, with the establishment of the Federal Reserve in the U.S., 
And that essentially... And the income tax. And the income tax, of course, yeah. And that essentially, um, you know, switched society from a hard money to a money that was easier to produce. And so the value, the quantity of the money has kept on increasing since then. And so the money has declined in value. And as a result, it has uh, declined in its usefulness as a store of value. And this is really what ties in the entire time preference story for me with the hardness of money. Essentially, it is the lowering of time preference that initiates the process of civilization. Hans Hermann Hoppe says, you know, the process of civilization is what happens when people start lowering their time preference. Because essentially, the first capitalist was the first monkey to use a tool uh, for production, to, you know, invest their time towards making a capital good rather than just uh, immediately catching a consumer good. And then to reuse that tool. And then to reuse that, exactly. In other words, that was the first store of value. And so over time, the better our stores of value, the more we are capable of thinking of the future, the better bearings we have on economic values around us that allow us to think of economic calculation further and further into the future with more and more reliability. Obviously, it's never going to be perfect. There's always error. But it's essentially inextricably link the time preference with the hardness of the money, with the function of store of value, with the idea of something being used as a store of value. If you can't store value into the future, you can't plan for the future. And the better your technology for storing into the future, the better you are able to plan for the future. And this is why I think ultimately what it really comes down to, why I think Bitcoin is go, is, is likely to be something astonishing if it succeeds, if it continues to succeed, because it's just going to smash down everybody's uh, time preference (laughs) and make everyone around you start thinking about the future much more. I think the world will be a much better place. This magic internet money has real consequences in people's behavioral changes in their human action. I like to look at, if you're going to optimize a human experience, you need health, wealth, experiences, and then relationships. Those are kind of your four major pillars in those orders. You know, if you're in a tremendous amount of pain, it's very difficult to have a good experience, even if you have tons of money, right? You know, if you're, you could be a multi-billionaire, but if you're quadriplegic, there still are significant limits on things that you can do. And even worse, if it's some type of a mental or cognitive uh, impairment that you've got. So when we're looking at like health, you know, in your book, you talk a little bit about fiat food. Uh, you, you just mentioned like behavior changes. I've seen this, you know, since I've been talking about Bitcoin for so long, people come up to me at conferences and they're like, yeah, I stopped smoking and drinking and now I buy Bitcoin with that <laughs> money and hodl it instead. So we're seeing yeah. changes in in uh, addictive behaviors, perhaps, you know, maybe, maybe the, the hodl bug or, or the yeah. hodl virus is like a very potent one. But in some ways, it's good, you know, because people are changing what some may perceive to be like a negative habit, you know, like alcohol or tobacco, you know, with lung getting lung disease with your future self because you've got this craving in the present. Yeah. Uh, but if you're changing that time preference and then you're throwing some gasoline on the fire by having such stark economic consequences as a result of that, you know, for example, when Bitcoin was like $5 a Bitcoin, you know, if you're smoking a pack of Bitcoin a day, that's 30 Bitcoins a month. That's yeah. 360 Bitcoins a year. Like the trade that you just made with your future self, even just five years into the future, yeah, you know, in terms of your lung capacity and your pulmonary system and your 750 Bitcoins, like worse off, 
Maybe you could talk a little bit about the the implications that this sound money and this change in time preference has on behavior changes and health, wealth, experiences, and and we'll get to relationships a little bit later too. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had the same experience with a lot of people uh, saying the same thing, you know, on Twitter as well. People keep saying the same thing. And I think, you know, the, the way that the current monetary system uh, works is that there's just not – there's no such thing as a good store of value that's liquid and that has liquidity across time and across space. So, you know, if you want money liquidity for today, you need dollars. But if you want liquidity for the future, if you want to save money for the future, you need gold. And so you end up having to hold a mix of both with all kinds of other assets being used as a store of value. And none of them really works uh, well as a store of value because none of them is uh, capable to be liquid and saleable across all of these uh, categories, across time and across space and so on. And so today, people are not able to have this technology that humanity has developed all throughout human history until the turn of the 20th century, when we decided to go back a few centuries. Lost our collective bearings. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Just lost our collective bearings. <laughs> like, whoa, you just went off the railroad tracks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's exactly like that. I mean, it happens. Like, it happens to individuals, you know. Sometimes things go bad for a few years. And like as a civilization, we seem to have gone off the rails for a century. But I think you know, we, you know, eventually we're going to find the rails and get back on them, <laughs> or, or we'll extinct ourselves. <laughs> no, I think life is more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. <laughs> we're not competent enough to ex- uh, exterminate ourselves, most likely. <laughs> I think people underestimate how hard it is to kill seven and a half billion people. <laughs> so yeah, so the absence of a good store of value means people can't really think much about the future. You could invest in stocks and bonds and all that stuff, but you know that's like ha- a-, a part-time job just trying to figure out what all of this stuff is. You know, for your average engineer or doctor, even a highly educated, intelligent person, you know, they don't really have the time and expertise to figure all of that stuff out. They need to dedicate serious amounts of time to it. And they're competing against highly competent, very smart people who do this full-time, professionally, and have huge amounts of resources behind them. And who can trade against them. And who have a monopoly system enforced by a central bank that, you know, gives them privileges that allow them to continue to charge uh, exorbitant fees. But anyways. And have lower cost of capital. For sure, of course. uh, Financial apartheid. But, you know, putting all of that uh, aside, what Bitcoin does now is that it has provided this tool that has been, you know, if you keep a time horizon longer than three years, has essentially always been a great store of value for anybody who's been waiting to wait for three years. And so with that, you know, people can also see it generally. On average, if you've waited three years, you've more than just made a profit you've made significant multiples of your initial investment and so people can see the opportunity cost to it and they can see this you know initially it brings back this scarcity of money and gives decisions their true weight and meaning and brings back the idea of opportunity cost which fiat money is a, a, a hallucination that wants to pretend that that stuff doesn't exist. It's like somebody who takes drugs jumps off of a window because they want to live in a world where gravity doesn't exist. And fiat money just destroyed the meaning of scarcity and the meaning of trade-off and the meaning of opportunity cost because it's possible for banks and central banks to just essentially create it at the will of politicians or bureaucrats or regulators or whatever. It's not money that is created out of actual value creation, out of somebody expending economic resources. It's easy money. So is this also perhaps 
why all the major world religions have had doctrine related to sound money. For example, the Jews are not able to lend against to other Jews. They can lend to, to people who aren't Jewish. Uh, Muslims are Sharia law and not supposed to have any type of debt ty- uh, types of yeah. things. Even in like the Old Testament and the Psalms, the borrower is servant to the lender in Proverbs. So there's a lot of both the Christians and the Jews have these prohibitions on debt and helping people understand like you don't want to trade your future self's freedom and liberty for present uh, consumption by getting yourself into debt because then you become a, a slave, basically. I mean, is it the civil rights aspect of it? Is it the morality of sustainable principles that society can be built on top of that that are being taught by these religions like like what do you think it is or it could just be you know institutional uh, evolution survival of the fittest you know only societies and cultures that have managed to maintain a kind that that kind of uh, so uh, just very practical pragmatic well yeah it probably ended up being a way for these societies to accumulate enough capital to continue to function with their sort of cultural uh, institutional infrastructure you know if if you have this kind of restriction on it it ends up paying off in the long run arguably well what about the role then with the institution of the family because that's another very long standing human tradition yeah. that seems to be very practical or very pragmatic how does that kind of tie in with this whole concept of time preference yeah. and posterity? Yeah, it's a very interesting topic and, you know, probably the most controversial part of my book because uh, I think this also is extremely and inextricably linked to time preference because in societies in which you have hard money, people need to save for the future and people save for the future and so they are able to provide for their children and then their children are able to provide for their children. And essentially the process of civilization is the process of each generation providing the next generation a better life than the one that it received. And that only happens through capital accumulation and saving. And, um, it, and it seems to really only happen in the institution of the family. Uh, absolutely, you know, yeah. people, people don't seem to want to sacrifice for just some random Joe on the street, like a mother would sacrifice for her children. For or sure. a father would sacrifice his life you know, letting the women and children in the lifeboat or storming the beaches of Normandy or whatever. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the move towards a higher time preference has been detrimental to the role of the family because people no longer really care much about investing in long-term relationships that can build long-term families. And so people are more likely to invest in short-term, less meaningful relationships over short periods of time than things that can build sustainable families and relations over time. And, you know, another aspect of that is once the government, once money moved from being uh, something that was determined on the free market and gold, and so it was expensive to mine, it was hard money, to government-made easy money, government is able to essentially create money at zero cost, and therefore government is effectively able to subsidize whatever it wants. And so more and more of the traditional functions of the family have moved over to, to the government. And so therefore, people have less of an incentive to invest in family. That, well, they get to free ride off other people's kids by collecting social security. Exactly. So why, you know, why raise good kids yourself when other people will just pay taxes anyway? And similarly, you know, children have the... Um, less of a reason to care for their parents in their old age and people delay marriage and people have fewer children and people 
paid less attention to their children growing up. And so I don't think you can see the demise of the family without uh, this move away from time preference. And this is, you know, the controversial part of it is, is that as a sort of cherry on top to paint this whole picture for that chapter together, uh, for chapter five, which is my favorite chapter of the book on time reference, to tie all of these things together, you know, I just ended it with the observation that Keynes uh, was not uh, your idea of a family man, Keynes. He was... Uh, well, perhaps we can have some specific examples here. <laughs> what a great <laughs> example Keynes is for uh, high time preference. Exactly. And I think, you know, Keynes, I came across very well-documented letters that him and his friends had been sending to each other about prostitution, uh, essentially prostitution of minors, um, traveling across the Mediterranean to resorts where they would be given, you know, essentially sex slaves and uh, they would pay for them. And, that and, was, uh, and, and Keynes himself was basically a trust fund kid, right? So so it's not like he made his own money. So he, he's spinning the seed corn that was created by exactly. previous generations to uh, engage in this just horrific, nefarious type of behavior. Absolutely. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's the quintessential uh, generation that was born with a golden spoon in its mouth and eventually spat it out because it didn't appreciate the importance of it. It didn't understand that, you know, that doesn't come as a default in life. Nobody gets born with that. Uh, yeah, it's You only get it because several generations of people had worked really hard at accumulating physical and financial and intellectual capital in order to get you to this point. But, you know, the thing about it is it's, it's, it's this natural cycle of civilizations that has been written on by many authors, including Ibn Khaldun. You know, the early generations, they're the ones who have the low time preference, essentially. They're the hardy warriors who build and establish something for the long run. Once people start to lower their time preference, they're able to build that. It, do, it doesn't necessarily mean that all barbarians or all the hunter-gatherers are uh, low time preference. It's just that the ones that lower their time preference are begin, able to begin to establish civilization. They lay the groundwork for it. And then the next generation you know, improves on it because they learn the work ethic and the low time preference from them. Then the third generation, I mean, I'm adding the interpretation of time preference. Ibn Khaldun doesn't discuss it in terms of uh, time preference, but he talks about it in terms of cultural decline, cultural decline, and, you know, just the attributes of hard work and dedication and so on. So the second generation is the one that builds upon it. The third generation is, you know, just sitting there enjoying it. It doesn't advance much more. And then that generation is just, you know, um, living off the wealth. The fourth generation is uh, then handed over a system where they don't appreciate the value of work. They've not spent time with the original generation. They haven't seen the sacrifices it took to build the civilization they have. And so they have very little concern for it. And so they tend towards high time preference sort of behavior. And that's exactly what Keynes represents. I mean, this is a person who uh, was one of the richest families in one of the richest countries, in the, the richest country in the world. So this is the pinnacle of, you know, capitalist development in the world was his family. And, you know, what did he do with it? What did he leave behind? He left behind a bunch of ridiculous blabberings, <laughs> blabberings in economics and then ridiculous blabberings in his own private affairs. The people have then actually applied and created just a tremendous mess. Absolutely. And in his personal life, I mean, the kind of um, time preference and the kind of behavior that is able to come up with these absolutely ridiculous economic theories that people apply today, 
that are completely built on the ignorance of the future and not thinking of the of the future it's exactly the kind of time horizon behavior that a certain person would have from that a high time preference person would have and would lead them towards engaging their base animal instincts in such disgusting and despicable ways as he did and i genuinely still stand by it uh, that you know i think it's absolutely fair game you cannot uh, it's particularly ironic to see the progressives of today get pissed off about it when they're you know reading the tea leaves of the teacups of anybody mildly critical of anything government related in order to discern hints of racism or inappropriateness and yet somehow and then that would just completely destroy the person intellectual in the, all of their work you know for instance hayek is just completely dismissed by these people because some association with chile just makes renders all of his work completely invalid and yet we somehow meant to believe that someone who was so depraved and such a high time preference degenerate that the that they spoke about child sex tourism to their friends and were um, essentially traveling for long times to live this as a part of their life, that this somehow doesn't affect their time preference. This is no reflection of their understanding of economics and how they make their economic decision makings. I think it's absolutely insane that this isn't taught in, with regards to Keynes. It definitely is relevant, just like it is relevant that Karl Marx never had a job in his life and was just basically the, the, the prototypical original leftist bum being supported by rich people to write gibberish. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one thing we find is that what people really love in their heart, their mind will then marshal any type of rationalizations or justifications for that. And so, you know, when we're in this process of becoming, we really have to do a lot of self-reflection to figure out what it is that is really motivating us. And then we begin making our decisions based on that. And that this whole principle of time preference, you know, we're making those trade-offs with our future self. You know, yeah. we're, we're canceling the cable bill now so we can buy more Bitcoins and hodl them, you know, and we're reading economics textbooks instead of watching Game of Thrones. Yeah. You know, it's always, it's always a trade-off of priorities and comparative Exactly. Uh, yeah. Goods. I mean, every moment of your life, you're taking a decision that is going to reap rewards or uh, costs in the future uh, and in the present. And, you know, you choose, as you said, you know, watch another TV series or read an econ textbook. And, you know, with the Internet, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely changing another factor, changing that because it's allowing everybody to learn anything, anywhere, at any time. And that's just a wonderful. For uh, free. For free, basically. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's an amazing uh, thing. So th these sort of things make you optimistic that this kind of world is, you know, the, the fiat world of high time preference uh, decline, essentially. And I think, you know, it's important to understand that there has been a real decline in these aspects. You know, someone like Jack Barzun, okay, maybe I am I go over the top a little bit when I talk about art, and you know. It was a bit of a uh, modern artwork, the, the well, kind of what, well, the yeah. way that it did it. But you know, you can't you can't dismiss someone like Jack Barzun, who wrote many many books and papers on the decline of yeah. art. And you see the same thing with innovation, with, with with health and with food. You can't think that that's isolated from what we have. You know, even your your part on art. You know, you you have the you talk about Michelangelo and just the backbreaking work that it took to create the Sistine Chapel. And you contrast it with this projectile vomit of contemporary art and how that stuff's valued a bunch. And sure, there's subjective value theory 
and, and labor theory of values. So it's not like just because it took Michelangelo so long and so much hard work to create that, that it's actually valuable. But it does make you question, like, why does somebody find so much more value in the projectile vomit contemporary art versus these classic masters? Yeah, that's a very good question. But, you know, my my answer to that is there is a fetish for everything out there. <laughs> well, yeah, there we go. Yeah, so anyways, we've uh, had a great conversation with Seyfedina Moose, Austrian School of Economics economist, author of The Bitcoin Standard, and we've had a wonderful discussion about time preference. And this is a week with Seyfedine, so we'll be getting on to some other topics. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Trace. This was amazing. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.